With that, let's pray. And we're going to look at Matthew chapter 26, verse 47 uh, through 56. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you, Lord, uh, for your word. Lord, we come before you as we continue to journey through the gospel of Matthew. We find ourselves in a a, a weighty section. Um, As we find ourselves in the the setting of Gethsemane, this location where the olives were crushed and pressed down upon for um, the oil. We find our Lord Christ in this garden being pressed down upon as the weight of the wrath that he would face as a result of our sin. We see his struggle and we We find ourselves in this garden as the story develops. Lord, as we um, look at today's act of betrayal and this this scene that sort of explodes, Lord, we ask that you would help us to understand what happened in context and the setting um, as Scripture has revealed it to us. We ask, Lord, that you would, uh, by your Spirit, Lord, help us to see um, principles that apply to us, ways that this passage uh, applies to our life. We pray, Lord, that uh, you would impress upon us the weight of the cross and all that Christ endured on our behalf. Um, We are grateful, Lord, that you would do such a thing for us. Lord, help us to understand the magnitude of this, um, this gift that was given. Help us not... Uh, to live lightly in light of all that you have done for us. Uh, Lord, help us now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Matthew 26, verse 47. While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs, who came from the chief priests and the elders of the people, Now he who was betraying him gave him a sign saying, gave them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately, Judas went to Jesus and said, hail rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and they laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who are with Jesus reached And drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you not think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. How then will the scriptures be fulfilled? which say that it must happen this way. At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. Then the disciples left him and fled. And Father, we do thank you again for this passage. We ask that you would help us now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. 
Amen. This is a difficult passage. If you know me at all, you know that I appreciate humor and laughter and fun. And, and if we can get the scriptures to come alive, it's a beautiful, wonderful thing. Um, there are some stories that, that are easier to make that happen with, and there are some that are more difficult. And we find ourselves in a passage where humor's not going to bubble out of me today. Um, I, this is a passage that as I sort of approach it this week, I'm scratching my head going, why did I break up the, like, why did I break up the passage? You know, back in September as we were heading into Christmas, I knew that we were heading into the crucifixion story. And I'm like, ah, it's probably more appropriate that we just do a timeout and let's pick up Matthew after the new year. And I sort of said, okay, where's the resurrection story? Let's, let's start at Easter and work our way back. And, and I was very... Um, in my, my praying over it, I said, oh, well, let's just take it a little bit at a time. Let's, let's, let's really allow ourselves to get into the story. It sounded great back in September. And then this week, as I come to this passage of the betrayal, I'm thinking, why did I give myself so little to work with? Um, I'm, I'm forcing us to, to really sit on this passage and to consider it. There's a temptation in my heart, which I can't do because I've already mapped it out towards Easter, is to just sort of fly over this stuff to get to the the quote-unquote good part, which is the resurrection. Um, As I have been pondering this text and praying about it, this is one of those that I find myself at night sort of tossing and turning, going, Sunday is coming, Sunday is coming. How do we we present this? What, What do you have for us, Lord? And Philippians 3.10 comes to mind. It, it, it came up a, a number of times. And then last night it surfaced again as I'm reading through a Ravi Zacharias book. Ravi Zacharias often references Philippians 3.10 in its uniqueness. Paul writes that I may know him, that's Christ, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. And so Ravi Zacharias is like he's. If you, I love him. If you know him, he's great, and and uh, one. Of, I think probably one of the greatest thinkers of our our day. Um, he points out that Paul addresses this in this passage, the whole gospel story, backwards from the other apostles and uh, and and other people of that day, because he came to know Christ sort of backwards. The other disciples or apostles who were living during this, they knew Jesus. They walked with him. They then saw the arrest. They then saw the, the various trials that he went through. They, they ultimately saw the, the gruesome, horrific uh, punishment of, uh, that was exercised on him through the cross. They waited their, the days, and then all of a sudden, Christ raises from the dead. And so that's sort of how they tell the story. But Paul was different. Remember, he was killing Christians and he was arresting them. And on the road to Damascus, the risen Christ appears before him. He falls on his face. He goes blind. And then from the risen Christ, he began his study, began his examination of of how did this story, this, this redemption story sort of unfold. And so then he, as he points out in this passage, that he may know the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, meaning that may he join in with Christ in the sufferings. And then finally, he says, being conformed to his death, that may he become like Christ in Christ's death. It's, it's, 
It's powerful. This whole passage started back in Philippians 2.5, which is not our passage for today. But, but Paul tells us, or the believers in Philippi, which then we can draw from, that this is the attitude that we're to have in ourselves. That Christ is our example, and he starts with the cross, and he says that, that Christ being God stepped down to earth, and he gave himself in this ultimate way. And by the end of it, he says, I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to be conformed to his death. And when I think about this, in light of this story, the thing that keeps, there's, there's power in, in us sort of steeping our thoughts like a tea bag into this pressure, into this weight that Jesus was bearing for us. And as we ponder him and what he went through, we begin to see the nature and character of God. It's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Like in this, we begin to see that, that Christ's love for us, that the Father's love for us is so great that he would go through this for us. If there's anything that, I, that you could take home today, that as we go through the story, it's easy to sort of think that this was an accident, that this was sort of Jesus was moving along and all of a sudden he like took one right turn like he's playing Minesweeper and he unclicked it. It's like, oh, that's the man, it's all over. This is not at all. This is, Jesus is totally and completely in control of this whole situation. Everything that is happening is happening because Jesus desires this to happen. It's happening because the, the scriptures have prophesied that this would happen, that this is the way things would be fulfilled and, and come about. In today's story, we'll see three sections. The first section is sort of Judas and the arrest or t- being detained in some sense. Then the second scene shifts to, to, our, to our lovely leader, Peter. And Jesus speaks to Peter and addresses Peter. And then the last scene, Jesus then turns to the crowd and he addresses the crowd. And so we begin with while he was still speaking here in verse 47. This is a great opportunity to sort of review the setting. So while he was still speaking, if we were to unfold uh, the evening, we would do a press rewind. Um, earlier in the night, he had um, he'd finished off the day by uh, the Olivet Discourse, the end of chapter 25. Um, he had spent two chapters sort of explaining to the disciples, answering their question, how things would unfold. How would the kingdom be ushered in? How would the Messiah come to reign and to rule as they were longing for? Uh, following that sermon, they, uh, they, they, the story in Matthew sort of, it doesn't go in chronological order. The story uh, shifts over to Bethany as far as Jesus is concerned. Uh, we're introduced to the night where Mary breaks the very expensive vial of, of oil and anoints Jesus. She, it goes on her, his head all the way down his feet. The disciples are in an uproar because of the expense of that perfume. And Jesus basically says, listen, she will be remembered forever because she's anointing my body for death. She is preparing me for uh, the cross. And sandwiched, or I should say that that sandwich between uh, the first few verses of 26, that, that the scene is the, the religious leaders, the, the high priest, they're all sort of 
working together, scheming, colluding. How, how can we bring Jesus under arrest? How can we ultimately have him crucified or, or put to death? How do we do this without starting up a riot? Uh, and as they're sort of going about their, their, their scheming, Judas kind of walks in and says, what do, you guys, what do you guys need for me to betray him? Make your best offer. And they basically give him nothing. 30 pieces of silver was absolutely nothing. They give the silver. The, the scene sort of moves on. Uh, we, we move from Bethany over to the, back to the city of, of Jerusalem. They find a room, which we know is the upper room. They celebrate the Passover meal. Jesus says, this is the Passover. This Passover has now, uh, it's being instituted in a new way that I ultimately am the Passover, that I will be um, the ultimate lamb to make the ultimate sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. And they move from there. They, they go down to the Kedron Valley, at the bottom of the Kedron Valley, where you have the Garden of Gethsemane, the place where after harvesting all of the olives, they would bring them there to be crushed so that the oil would, would come out. And there, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was crushed with the emotional weight of what he was about to sort of go through, that the weight of the world, the weight of the wrath of God was to be pressed upon him. We're told that he was in so much agony and distress that, that his, as he sweated, the capillaries exploded and, and, and blood began to come out. And the disciples, we see their failure of standing there with Jesus and they're praying. And it's in this moment that we pick up the story he had told them, guys, it's time to go. The betrayer's at hand. Let's get moving. And while he was still speaking, verse 47, behold, Judas, one of the 12. It's interesting. Judas is the only one in all of the scriptures ever to be referred to as one of the 12. Um, at this point in the story, there's no, there, there's no reason for, for Matthew to introduce Judas to him. He could have just said the betrayer appeared. None of the apostles in their writing speak very harshly about Judas. It's simply Judas, one of the twelve. He was one of us. How Jesus handles Judas is, is, is beautiful. The, the grace, the poise, as he's showing up, the scripture, all it says is Judas, one of the twelve. We know he's one of the twelve. We know who Judas is. None of us have named our children Judas. Nobody names their children Judas. He's been marked in history. And when you contrast the writing of the scriptures, if you start digging to extra biblical sources, which I don't really think are true, you can find some really hilarious stories in the extra biblical sources. Um, and the only reason I bring these up is to show how everybody else was really harsh on Judas for many, many years. Um, there's one story that goes that when Judas was born, his mother knew right away he was going to be a rat, so she tried to drown him but failed. I don't think that was true. There's another one that says in the betrayal story that after he betrayed Jesus, he goes back to his wife and she's there barbecuing chicken. And he says, oh, I got to go and all this stuff. And the wife said, there's no way Jesus is going to rise from the dead. This chicken has a greater odds of rising from the dead than Jesus raising from the dead. And, and the, the rumor goes that as she said that the chicken came to life and killed the wife and Judas went and hung himself. It's foolish. It's not true. I don't, it's not true. My point is that the disciples were very nice to him. <laughs> Simply that he was one of us. That this man who we loved, who we walked with, who saw these things, 
this Judas. He came up, accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Remember, going back to Matthew 26, I referenced it earlier, but in Matthew 26, verse 3, we read, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus, seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. Verse 14, then one of the twelve named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and said, what are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. From then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. And so now the opportunity has come up. I'm not sure uh, when all of this sort of happened. Maybe Judas got sort of ticked off at Jesus at the Lord's Supper as Jesus basically calls him out and said, one of these guys is going to betray me. So somewhere between the Lord's Supper and the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas takes off. He goes to them and he's ready. He's done. Hey, guys, the, the moment... The moment is here, let's betray Jesus. I'll take you. He's going to be down in the Garden of Gethsemane. He goes there all the time. I know exactly where he goes. Come on, let's go, let's go. And so we see by this crowd, it's a, it's a large crowd. Some have speculated that this was upwards of a 1,000 people. Swords and clubs, the swords would indicate that these were Roman soldiers um, who had the authority to execute somebody. The, the Jewish uh, security force had no authority um, to take a man's life. They were allotted, you know, 30 lashes. Um, but we know that it was in the midst of the, the Passover celebration. So they, we know that they did not want to cause any sort of riot. They're, they didn't want any sort of problems to sort of uh, set Jerusalem with the 2.5 million people that had descended upon the city to basically cause a riot in the middle of the night in the midst of Passover. That's the last thing that Rome uh, would want them to do or Rome would come down harshly on them. And so in the midst of this, I think that their plan, and we'll see sort of Jesus pushing back, but the, the, their plan that they've put together is to sort of paint Jesus as, as one who's an insurrectionist, that he was uh, trying to start a riot against Rome. And if they could get the Romans to see that Jesus was an insurrectionist, which he wasn't, then they could take his life and the Jews. Now, when I say the Jews, I need to sort of take a time out here. Everybody except for the, the Roman soldiers in the story is Jewish, okay? This isn't like the Jews are the bad guys and the good guys are the non-Jews. This isn't what's happening. They're all Jews. They're non-believing Jews and there's believing Jews. And so those non-believing Jews who want Jesus removed they figured if there's a way that we can convince the Romans that he's an insurrectionist, they'll deal with the problem and they can sit there with their hands clean. And we didn't do anything. We had nothing to do with it. This man got himself into his own trouble. So they descend. It's a huge crowd. It's dark. We know that it's in the middle of the evening. We know that because it's Passover, it's a full moon. We have no idea what the weather was like. A thousand people going to 12 Galileans in this, this garden. It's hard to identify. This is before flashlights. This is before electronics. They show up on the scene. 
and there'd be some confusion. Matthew tells the story in a very streamlined way. There's so much data that he leaves out. And, and, and while I'm tempted to sort of bring all of the other accounts in, I, I, I desire to sort of mainly stick to, to Matthew's account so that Matthew's main point can sort of bubble to the surface. And I think that in this account, the main thing that we'll see here is Matthew is trying to show to his Jewish reading audience that this Jesus is indeed the Messiah and he's fulfilled the scriptures, that scriptures foretold that all of this would happen and Jesus fits the bill, that he's completely in control of this whole scene as it's unfolding. And so in verse 48, now he who was betraying him, Judas betraying Jesus, gave them the Jewish leaders, the Romans, a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one sees him. So he told them exactly how he was to let them know who this individual was. In the other accounts, you can see that they're like, hey, we're looking for Jesus. And Jesus is like, who are you guys looking for? You're looking for Jesus? I am. And they fall on their face, like worshiping that, that he is God. Matthew doesn't make a big deal out of this. We sort of focus on Judas's betrayal. And I've, I've been thinking about what, what was Judas going through in his mind? He knew, like, he'd started the initiation process of this betrayal. But there's a line in the sand that you can't sort of uncross. Um, a few weeks ago, last month, I had to do one of the hardest things I've had to do, like, ever. It was terrible. Anne and I had our anniversary. That's not the terrible part. <laughs> We spent a day down at the beach. That wasn't the terrible part. And, and I, we, we got back to our house where, like, Grandma and Grandpa are there, and I'm sort of getting out of the car, and I, I'm, my phone is vibrating, so I'm trying to do, you know, do the dance because the pants are a little bit too tight, trying to get the phone out. By the time I get the phone out, I can't answer the call, but I see it's my buddy Joe. And Joe never calls me. And so I halfway think Joe's, like, he's, like maybe there's news that I missed. That there, he's a Raiders fan, so he's obnoxious. Like, maybe he's harassing me for something. I don't know what he's doing. But then I missed the call, and then I see he texts me right away, and he's like, you need to call me right away. And I was like, oh, no. Well, Joe is, he's the medical examiner chaplain. And so I call him back, and he's, he explains to me a situation that the, he has a guy, which is never good if he has a guy, um, that has connections to Escondido, maybe fire department, maybe. and But there's also a possible Valley Center address, and... They're really short-handed, and, and he's like, can you, like, he's like, I'm like, what are you asking me? He's like, well, I need you to go figure out if this address is legitimate, if there's family there, if there's anything there. And so without even really, like, like in hindsight, it was like, I really should have thought about things through a little bit, but I'm like, coming back from the beach, I'm in my jeans, flip-flops, like, yeah, I'll go, I'll go. And I'm like, now there's somebody there. He's like, yeah, go ahead and let, let them have the notification. So the address I got, I'm like whittling through Valley Center to this address who I'm thinking that nobody's, like, I'm hoping that I don't find the address. I literally wasn't thinking that much at all, quite frankly. But then I find the house and I find the address and I see that it's sort of the house is alive. And I think, oh no. Like, I really should have thought, I should have brought some, some resources. I should have maybe changed Maybe I can just get out of here. I don't work for the medical examiner chaplain. I have no obligation, so I can just leave. 
And I'm like, I just want to turn around. And then I like have this pressing, like, well, what? <laughs> like, what would you want somebody to do for you? And I'm thinking, well, I'd want, I'd like, I'd want to know. And so then it's like going down to the front door and I see the lady and I don't want to spare the details for the privacy of the family, but it's a hor- it, it. And I wasn't even betraying somebody, but I knew that in, like with my words, with my actions, at that moment, I would cross a line that would forever change the history of this family and what they were going through. And it was a terrible feeling. And the whole time, it's like, okay, I'm in my car. Maybe I just turn around and peel off and go out of here. Then I'm at the front door, knock on the door. Uh, I used to play doorbell ditching when I was a kid. Maybe I'll get out of here, you know? And then I had to go through and there was no, there's no undoing when you do a notification. It's terrible. And so I think of Judas. At some point he'd said, hey, how much? Okay, then I'm here. Then when I'm here, I'm going to kiss him on the cheek. And I see Judas walking to Jesus in the darkness and go, maybe, maybe I'll just go kiss Peter. I kiss Peter. <laughs> like maybe like, you know, maybe I can get myself out of this. But he crosses that emotional line and he kisses Jesus. And, and as he kisses him, we see some distancing of Judas from Jesus. He doesn't go up to Jesus and say, hail my Lord, my master. He says, hail rabbi, sort of addressing him as a teacher, but distancing himself. And he kissed him. This has got to be the worst act of betrayal and Jesus, to see his gentle response, he says, friend, phileo, this, this dear brother, do what you have come for. Like I know, he's like, I know why you're here. Just, just continue with it. Go through with it. It's okay. So gentle. I look at Jesus, I think, why didn't he punch him in the nose? That's what I'd want to do. Like, get, him, get on my guard. Start fighting my way out of the situation. Run as fast as I could. Whenever I got hazed in the SEAL teams, which never happens according to whatever, I took a nickname. My nickname in the SEAL teams was, well, one of them was Gunner the Runner. Is that as soon as I saw the old guys coming, I was, that's where I learned about infrared goggles, and I thought it, it never ended well. But Jesus just stands there like, okay, guys, let's get this over with. I know what's happening. He's totally and completely in control. And we're told that they came and they laid hands on Jesus and they seized him. When we get to the third scene, we'll see that this was probably forceful. This wasn't done with with gentleness. They came and they laid hands on Jesus. A, A violent, you deal with violence of action, you get the person into custody. And Jesus eventually is going to be all alone here. But in the midst of this scuffle, we enter into the second scene. And behold, one of those who are with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. So unlike Judas, we know who this is. We know this is Peter. Um, Peter, in the midst of the commotion, he pulls out his sword. He tries to cut the guy's head off. He's a fisherman. He's never shot that thing before. He, he gets his ear cut off. Matthew makes no reference of the account of Jesus going to him and, and putting his hear, ear back on and healing the guy. There, there's, there's no mention of this. 
It's so easy in this passage to look at this story like, oh, here, Peter's at it again. Now he's not just running his mouth. Now he's like cutting people's heads off or their ears off. Like, what is he thinking? And it would be very easy to sort of come down on Peter um, in this story. And a lot of people do. But the question is, is why would, why would Peter respond this way? And the answer to that, we, we have to sort of bridge out to get some historical context or even the biblical context. If you'll turn with me over to Luke chapter 2, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke chapter 22, verse 35. There's some relevant information over in Luke. So Luke 22, verse 35. So as you're turning there to sort of get your minds back into context, we've just gone back to the Passover meal. So now we're, we're at the setting of the Passover meal. We're at the setting of Luke's account. Luke is a man who was a, a physician, but really a, he be, history holds him as a historian that he wasn't present. He did all of his research. He investigated everybody, put together a very seamless presentation of all the things that had happened. And so we pick up the story in verse 35. And he, that's Jesus, said to them, when I sent you out with, without money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? He said, no, nothing. So we know that Jesus said, hey, you guys remember earlier in our ministry when we were up in the Galilee region and I sent you out two by two and you were to go out and you were to share about the kingdom, you were to talk to the people, you were to avoid the, uh, the people of Samaria. Um, and I told you, don't bring your ID, don't bring your credit card, don't bring any money, bring nothing. Just the clothes on your back and just go about and, and share the gospel. Um, if, if a person rejects you, just, you know, shake the dust off your feet. Go to the next person. Trust me, it'll be okay. The people who receive you, share with them. They'll put you up that you'll be taken care of. And he says, you guys remember that. Everything was fine. He says, yeah, they all went out. They were two by two. Everything, we, you totally provided for us during that. Now, Jesus then says in verse 36, and he said to them, but now... Whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise, also a bag. And whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. So he says, guys, things are, things are about to change on us. That was then. This is now. So now if you have a stash of cash, if you have a money belt, take it. Get your supplies. If you don't have a sword, Sell your cloak, sell your jacket, your, the most important piece of equipment that any individual could have during that time. He says, sell your jacket and get a sword. And there's no way around this word sword. This is a, this is a, a double-edged weapon that would basically, in our context, would be a handgun. This is a tool that was used for self-defense and taking of life. There, there, there is, there's no other way around it. This is not a Swiss Army knife so they could open up their, their tuna fish cans when they're traveling. Um, this is a sword. He says, things are changing. This is the end of the Lord's Supper. So they go out, we're told. There's kind of, uh, Jesus is talking about that like he's, he's anticipating his death, burial, and resurrection. We skip down to verse 38. After Jesus says this, get a sword. They, they, they rumbled around where, the house and they said, uh, look, here are two swords. And Jesus said to them, that's enough. 
So they came up with two swords. Clearly, Peter had one of them. We don't know who had the other one. They pack up shop at the upper room. They make their way down to Gethsemane. And at Gethsemane, everything sort of explodes on them. And so back to Matthew 26. So here we are. I hope this sheds some context on, like, Peter's just trying to obey Jesus. They're just down there praying. They're half asleep. They don't know what's going on. They're just celebrating the Passover. They're following Jesus. Jesus praying. He's clearly upset about things. He's clearly stressing about things. But but what was about to unfold? The, the disciples had no idea of, of the magnitude. Next thing they know, there's a crowd of a thousand people descending. Judas comes up, kisses Jesus. He's taken into custody. And Peter's like, I'm going to get him out of here. He just said that he would go to his death for him before denying him. And so Peter pulls out that sword and he tries to defend his Lord. And he takes the ear off of the guy. Jesus puts it back together. Jesus says to him in verse 52, Peter, put your sword back into its place. Holster your weapon. For those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Looking at the clock because I never know how much to address on this point. This is one of those verses that has had a tremendous influence in my life. A a, a verse that I've had to wrestle through. Um, I came to Christ at 22 years old. At the time, I was an active duty Navy SEAL. I carried the sword for a living. I wish I had a sword. I only had guns and little knives, but that's a difference. It's my Viking blood that I wish I had other stuff, but that's, that's neither for here nor there. Um, and at 22, I had all kinds of questions. Uh, pacifism wasn't even on the radar. Like that, that wasn't something that I was really struggling with. But at 22, when I came to Christ over a series of months, I decided that I had some questions about God. And so in order to answer the questions, what I would do is I would just read through the Bible cover to cover. And so I set off on a quest at 22 to read the Bible in a year. Fast forwarding to my 25th birthday, I was almost done. So my, that one year through the Bible took about four years. And I found myself deployed in the Middle East. It was, I woke up on a September 9th, whatever year it was. Um, I knew it was 1999. It's my 25th birthday. And I, we were supposed to go into port to the UAE, which is the southern part of uh, the, the, the Arabian Gulf. And so we're all kind of getting up like, hey, man, we've heard great things about Dubai. We're going to have fun. I'm like, dude, this is sweet. It's my birthday. I'm going to Dubai. I'm going to just check everything out. I'm going to get some good food. And then I hear over the speaker, SEAL Team 3, Alpha Platoon, commanding officer, get up to the CEO's office right away. And it's like, oh, that's not good. <laughs> that's One of us is in trouble or we just got the green light for something. We naturally thought we were in trouble because that would have made a lot more sense. And it turns out we weren't. Within an hour, we were loaded up to a helicopter to go to somewhere where we don't know. We didn't know. Got to a helo carrier, picked up some people, and then we were off for a very long flight to the northern Arabian Gulf off of the coast of Iraq. Uh, by, by the time that we arrived, we still had no details of what was going on. And I'm not free to disclose all of the details of what was going on. Um, but at the end of that transit time, 
I found myself about three in the morning out on the fantail of this ship in the middle of nowhere in total darkness for the first time in my life taking this magazine, that's what holds bullets, not a clip, but that's a different class, taking my magazine, loading it into my gun, slamming the bolt forward, thinking, Gunner, how did you get yourself into this one? How does my Christian faith now fit with this position of bearing the sword for the government? I didn't have a whole lot of time to sort of wrestle through that then because it was too late for that. It was, uh, and so I remember praying a distinct prayer like, Lord, whatever happens tonight, I, just, I have to place myself into your hands and to, to, to trust that you'll help me not to screw up was basically my prayer. And so that night, obviously, had a, it stuck with me. And then as my trying to read through the Bible in a year, I realized reading through the Bible in a year didn't answer all my questions. I started Bible college, and then eventually I went to seminary. And then at seminary, a handful of years later, trying to finish seminary, I was told I had to do a, a, a thesis, and a, a defending of, of something. I was just trying to jump through the last hoop. And so every time I tried to jump through the hoop, they said, that's a terrible idea. Shut, shut it down. And then through another passage in Scripture, after many attempts of trying to get approved for a thesis, I finally said, well, what do you guys think about the Christian in combat? And they gave me the green light. And so I spent many, many months studying and researching, interviewing a pacifist that I knew um, really um, at the beginning of the process, my heart was to reach the conclusion that, that pacifism was the answer. And I would say that those who have had to carry a weapon, I found that the men and women who have to defend in this way, they're the, they are those that love peace more than anybody else because they understand the nature of the horrors of having to deal with this sort of stuff. And so this is one of those passages that is, it, it, it's the Sermon on the Mount, there's blessed are the peacemakers. That's one pacifist verse, which I don't, I'm not, this is not a class or a sermon on pacifism or against pacifism, but, but then the other one is this one. And so the question is, is, is Jesus speaking across the, the board and it's and it is I love pacifists, I, I appreciate them, and I'm not saying that tongue in cheek, like I really do. I I I value their opinion, I, I long to hold their opinion. But when I look at this in context, this that's not what's being said here. So he basically tells Peter to stand down. Peter, holster your weapon. We can't lose sight of the context that he just told the disciples, if you, if you don't have a sword, go get one. It's more important than staying warm at night. Have a sword. And so Peter gets here and he pulls out his sword. He cuts and he says, put that away. He who lives by the sword dies by the sword. And in that statement, I think he's just making a simple truth, a, a, a truism. That if you're going to go around carrying a weapon, if you're going to be in that role, the odds of you dying in that same way are way higher. A police officer who has to carry a weapon to protect 
us to provide an environment for us. They're more likely to die by weapon. A military person who's serving by carrying a weapon, their odds of them dying by a weapon are much higher. It's a risk that comes. It's sort of a truism. My risk has declined radically since becoming a pastor of dying by the weapon. It'll be by a heart attack now. (laughs) It'll be something different. Um, And I think the bigger picture, and this is going to, I'm going to have to develop this thought a little bit. But we're going to have to, well, I'm not going to develop, I'm going to let Jesus develop the thought. I think the main thing here is Jesus is telling Peter, Peter, I don't need your help. I'm not a helpless victim here. This isn't an accident. This isn't I, I, I made a wrong step. This has all been a part of my plan. You stand down and you yield yourself to the plan that is being unfolded that I've been telling you about all the way since Caesarea Philippi when Peter says, For God forbid it, I'll never let them take your life. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. It was the wrong time and it was the wrong place for the use of the sword. Jesus then explains to Peter, Peter, you're basically pulling out a toothpick at a gunfight. Look what he says, verse 53. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Well, what is a legion of angels? What are we talking about? Like, first, okay, let's deal with legions. One legion, during this time of the Roman army, a legion was uh, 6,000 foot soldiers, potentially more, but for the simplicity of math, we're dealing with 6,000 foot soldiers. And so 12 legions would be roughly 72,000 angels. Now, right away, when you're thinking angels, get Cupid out of your mind. Get, get the little guy in a diaper that's just really like soft with a halo and flowing wings. Get Larry out of your mind from the Christmas Eve service, you know. This is not what we're dealing with. For example, in 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35, one angel in one night, one evening, we're told, destroyed 185,000 human beings. One angel, one night. That is a massive killing capacity. So if we do the math, and I'm not going to do it in my head because my brain would seize or explode or something, but 6,000 foot soldiers times 12, we come to 72,000. You take 72,000, multiply that by 185,000 people. That gives us a ballpark of 6 billion people. So when Jesus says to Peter, who's got his little sword that he doesn't know how to use, he says, Peter, really? You don't think that in this very moment I could appeal to the, to the Father and 12 legions of angels with a killing capacity that is 30 times the population of people on the earth at the time of Jesus' speaking. Jesus saying, I'm totally in control, Peter. I have the ability with one word to take out the whole world if I so choose to do so. I'm not helpless being under arrest. This is my plan is to be under arrest. 
He's telling Peter, Peter, I do not need your help. Jesus doesn't need our help. He doesn't need my help. He doesn't need your help. Jesus is Lord. God is all-powerful, almighty. And what's bubbling up here is we should be able to see his sovereignty, his power, his authority over all things. And yet in the midst of this, he is allowing feeble humanity to place him into custody and to go to the cross. And he's going to explain, verse 54, this has to happen, Peter. How then will the scriptures be fulfilled, which say that it must happen this way? Peter, this was foretold about. The scriptures say so. Matthew says this all the time. Matthew is showing to the Jewish reader that Jesus fulfills all the prophecies concerning who the Messiah would be. We read in Isaiah 53. I don't know what your guys' Mardi Gras plans have been, all the stuff leading up to Easter. I don't think that that, I'm not quite sure what that has to do with getting ready for Good Friday and reflecting on the cross. I'd encourage you to read Isaiah 53 over and over and over again, leading up to Easter, which, Easter, which depicts the suffering servant. This was written hundreds of years prior to Jesus' arrest. Daniel 9, 27, 26 talks about that the anointed one will be cut off. Jesus is making it clear that he is not under arrest by accident or by happenstance. It's not an afterthought. It was very intentional, the things that are happening in today's story. And then we turn to the crowds. Verse 55, at that time, Jesus turns to the crowds. The first section focused, focused on Judas as being t- placed into custody. Then we have sec- scene number two, uh, Jesus dealing with Peter. And now, thousand-ish people, Jesus turns to them and he begins to speak. And he says, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Now, not to be a dead horse. But dealing with the previous verse, Peter put the sword away. He who lives by the sword dies by the sword. When he addresses the crowd, when he addresses the Roman soldiers, when he addresses those that are in authority, which Romans 13 tells us that all authority over us has been ordained by God, it goes on to say that the authorities over us don't bear the sword in vain. And when I search the scriptures, I only see one command, one God-given rule of a human authority that's over us as far as government is concerned. And it's basically to restrain evil. And that those who do evil, the government has an authority to punish. And it says, if you don't want to be afraid, don't do what's wrong. And so Jesus here, as they come out to him with the authority of the government, with swords and with clubs, he says, you're coming out here and treating me like you would treat a robber? He's saying that if there's a murderer, this is exactly how you're supposed to greet him. But, but I'm out here praying. I've done nothing wrong. I'm not an insurrectionist. I'm not leading a revolt against Rome. But you come out in the middle of darkness after scheming, and you're arresting me and taking me into custody as you would a robber. He's like, every day, I used to sit in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. He's like, I was there in front of thousands of people teaching, explaining all that I'm about, 
all that I would do, all that I would accomplish. Why didn't you arrest me then? Why do you come out at two in the morning in the cloak of darkness with a mob and take me into custody now? He's making his case. He is not an insurrectionist. He is free of all sin. He is free of all guilt. He has done absolutely nothing wrong. But he tells them that the reason that this is happening, verse 56, but all of this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. It's all according to God's plan. Then all of the disciples fled. And Jesus finds himself all alone. And so when I think about this passage, like how do we apply this to ourselves? Don't cut off people's ears. That's probably not a good one. Well, I mean, that's a good one. Don't cut off people's ears. That's, that's a... But this whole Philippians 3.10, I think about Paul. That I may know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. And so when we look at this scene and we see that Jesus is totally in control, he's yielding himself completely to the Father's will. He who is without any sin is now about to become sin by having the sin of the world and the wrath that it is due placed upon him. It's starting. Why would Paul think this way, that he'd want to know the fellowship of his sufferings, that he would be conformed to his death. When I think about the great apostle Paul, this guy was, how he struggled in his flesh was not like me. Like I, I was more of a hedonist. I was not a religious sinner. But Paul was a religious sinner. See, Paul, he thought before God that he was blameless, that he had fulfilled the scriptures. And so when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, he suddenly got a glimpse of the holiness of God and it blew Paul away. He fell on his face. He recognized that his righteousness was nothing. In fact, if we were to back up Philippians 3.10 a little bit, he had just said a word that I can't even use in this context, but he said that he's dung, that his righteous acts were nothing. They were manure. And, and all of those things are meaningless. And all he wants to know is to know Christ more intimately. It's beautiful. Your greatest problem today, if you're not a Christian, is that your relationship with God. This is the greatest problem you face. You might think you have taxes that are your problem. You might have other things that are your problem. Your greatest problem is your relationship with God. And as we look at this story, this is the weight, this is the pressure, this is what our sin deserves. And if you haven't come to saving faith, faith, there's no greater thing for you to do than to come to Christ and to receive this gift. And if you've received Christ, we all have problems in life. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat problems. The Bible actually paints a pretty clear picture on problems that this is a very difficult life. Sin has destroyed this world. There is evil everywhere. Our bodies are falling apart because of sin. There's people uh, dealing with it. I, you know, I giggle at the old country song. I probably shouldn't even say it. You know, God is great. 
people are crazy and this other stuff. It's like, it like summarizes it. Like there's kind of like the, this world is filled with pains and sorrows. Look at, we're going to close with Romans chapter five. We need to understand how do we as followers of Christ understand our problems? How do we take the trials and tribulations that come our way? When we look at Romans chapter five, verse three, Paul writes, and not only this, but we exult, we glory in our tribulations. That seems crazy. We, ex- we exult in hope. I'm in the wrong part. It says it twice. And not only this, but we exult in hope in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us for while we were still helpless. This is the key part in all of this. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's you and that's me. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare to even die. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If there's anything we take from the story today is that this wasn't an accident. Christ went into the storm by his own desire, by his own will, because he loved us. Not because we'd done anything good, not because we have any righteousness of our own, but because he created us and he desires to reconcile us to the Father. And the only way that can happen is through his sacrifice on the cross. And so for those of us who have received Christ and we still go through trials and tribulations, according to Paul here, whatever trial you're going through today, we recognize our God is greater than whatever thing we're going through. And so whatever trial, whatever tribulation we're suffering through in this life, we understand that God is using it to refine us, to conform us, to shape us into his image. And so that one day, which we long for, which we hope for, we'll be fully redeemed, fully restored, without sin, stain, I don't want to say wrinkle, we'll be pure, and we'll worship him fully and completely. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to trust in you. For those of us that may be listening and haven't received you as Savior, maybe they're not sure. Lord, I pray that you would help them to trust you for salvation. For those of us, Lord, for all of us, Lord, as we go through this life, there are, there, there are, there are troubles, there are trials. Our bodies are, de- are, are wasting away. We're being attacked by various things. There's sin in the world. There's evil. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see this world through your eyes. That you would help us to have a bigger picture of you, to know that you are not helpless. Lord, help us to yield ourselves to you, to go through whatever trials you are allowing to, uh, for us. And as Paul wrote, Lord, we pray that you would help us to pray this prayer, that we would know the power of the resurrection, that we would come to understand 
and participate in in the fellowship of his sufferings and that we would be conformed to his death. Lord, you are all in all. We thank you, Father. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.